Are you glad you're here? Boy, I am. Yeah, great to have, great to have everyone here. Love Grace, love this place. Thanks for being part of it. We, uh, before I get started, we have uh, an opportunity. I, I want to throw out another dollar club opportunity. So if you're new here, you can just tune this out. This is where, uh, in addition to other gifts, we uh, all chip in a little and we could do amazing things uh, when we come together. A few months ago, a couple months ago, we all uh, did a dollar club, a, a chip in thing for two of our own and uh, Brooke and Carl and they, for adoption. And we actually uh, raised over $10,000 here at Grace. And then that helped them meet their total financial goal, which they have met. And last I heard now that they are kind of in contact for a possible match for adoption. So please keep praying for them. That all seems to be coming together and it's great stuff. But today we have another opportunity. This is something that we've done before. Uh, as we look around the world and see uh, Christians who are hurting and persecuted, one of those places is a place called Myanmar. It used to be called Burma. And there has been a civil war there going on for decades, actually. But recently, just I think last year, uh, the military took over the government. And so there's a military dictator there. And they stepped up the persecution on the northern tribes. Uh, there's two of the largest tribes in the northern hills of Burma are Karin and Kachin. And those two tribes have significant Christian percentages in a part of the world where there's hardly any believers, like Thailand's less than 1% Christian, and Burma's the same way, except up in the north, uh, some of these tribal people, more of them are believers, and their villages continue to be bombed out. We continue to have different villages who are hiding out in the jungle. Sometimes their villages are just leveled. At other times, they destroy part of the village, and then they leave some of the food stores there, and then they mine all around the villages. And when the villagers then come out of the jungles to try to get food, they're actually blown up as they try to get into their village. And so these people are hiding out in the jungle. There is some resistance and all that, but we're talking about helping people, some of which are believers, who are in the jungle right now. They don't, they, there's some things they can eat in the jungle, but it's not enough. And so we're talking about taking in aid. Right now, we know people uh, in Thailand that will take that. We know them personally. We've talked to them. One of them's been here. I mean, we, we know them well, and we have a direct channel to funnel aid where every single cent you give goes right there. It's wired over there. And uh, then it gets that aid in the form of rice mainly gets taken across the river and into the jungle to meet the needs of these people. So every penny that you give, David Lee, our finance guy, will make sure that that gets sent. And the way that's all going to time out with our contact there, it will hit there the week leading up, the week of Christmas, before Christmas. And so if you want to be a part of that, uh, you, some of you already know how to do that. That's a dollar club. You can do that right now. And we'd love for you to be a part and we'll try to report back to you what happened on that. But today we're starting a new series called The Line. And, and this is all about Advent. It's all about Jesus coming to the world. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. It's kind of interesting to me that when we were kids, remember how Christmas was when you were a child, almost all of us. I mean, man, leading up to Christmas, 
It was so exciting. I mean, you're out of school. You're going to get gifts. Everybody's pumped. All the other kids are pumped up. I remember one time, me and my brothers, me and my brothers dancing around the living room going, this is Christmas Eve Eve. Christmas Eve Eve. I mean, it was the day before Christmas Eve, you know, and we were in college then. You know, it was just, it's just what we do. I mean, everybody's waiting, waiting for Christmas to come, and, and we, we're just anticipating it. We're fired up. But then we grow up, right? And then Christmas kind of changes for me. There's a lot of responsibilities. Uh, it, our schedule gets a lot busier. Uh, we have shopping to do, or our significant, you know, our, our spouse does all the shopping, you know, however that works, but we got stuff to do, and, and uh, we have meetings to catch, you know, all these things. And we have get-togethers, we have family, and, and all this stuff starts happening, and we get so busy that we start losing sight of Christmas. I mean, we still enjoy it, but what we lose is the excitement. And more than that, what we lose is the anticipation. I mean, it's almost here. It's just about here. Here it is coming. And, and we've lost, as adults a lot of times, the anticipation of Christmas. That's exactly the way it was for the Jewish people in the first century before Christ was born. And you might wonder, well, why is that? Well, to understand that, you have to know a little bit about their history. So I'm going to do this briefly. You know I do this to try to tie everything together. But the father of the Jewish people is a man named Abraham. God calls this guy Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to go to this other land that you've not been to, which is Canaan, modern-day Israel. And so Abraham goes there, the land of Canaan. He's never been there before. And because of his faithfulness and his desire to follow God, God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make nations of you. And through you, the entire world would be blessed. And then we came to understand that what God meant by that is that through Abraham's line would come a savior of the world. And then we might ask, savior from what? We talk about that at Christmas time. We read a card, the savior of the world. What's he saving us from? He's saving us from our sin. Because truth is, there is a righteous and holy God who created the world and everything in it. And this God, because of his character, must punish sin. But because he has created us with the ability to choose him or not choose him because he doesn't force us to follow him, we've all sinned. So it's a problem. And the, the Savior of the world will come to save us from the just and right consequences of our own personal sin. That's what they're talking about. That's what we mean about a Savior. So now Abraham's there He's promised that the Savior is going to come from his lineage. He has a grandson named Jacob, who is also called Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons, and they're living in Canaan, or they're living in modern-day Israel. And while they're living there, there's a big-time drought, and they're not going to survive. And they realize that they need to go to Egypt in order to survive that. They do that, and they actually go to Egypt under the protection of one of the sons who's become a bigwig in Egypt, and his name was Joseph. And they go there, and everything's great for a while. And then Joseph dies, and the family keeps growing and growing and growing. I mean, it was 
Jacob, his sons, and his grandkids that went, but now all of a sudden they, they turn into a nation and they become enslaved by the Egyptian people. They're enslaved for 400 years. And they think that God is silent, but they're crying out, what's going on? We're, we're supposed to be God's chosen people. God answers their prayer by, by raising up a man named Moses. Moses goes to Egypt, he confronts Pharaoh, and he is the leader that delivers the Jewish people or the Israelite people or the Hebrew people, all same thing. He delivers them out of Egypt and out of bondage. They cross the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness, and 40 years later, because of some, they weren't exactly following God, 40 years later, then they cross over into this promised land, Israel, Canaan. And Joshua leads them in, because Moses has just died. Once they get there, God's given them this land, everything's great, they, they conquer their enemies, they start worshiping God, but then Joshua dies, and eventually the people start worshiping false gods. And this is a continuing problem with them and them. I mean, they have the land, they eventually, they, God gives them leaders to bring them back to him because they're constantly drifting. They ask for kings, God gives them kings, but the people keep on drifting away from God and where they would end up worshiping false gods. And that happened over and over. When that would happen, then their enemies would defeat them and then they would cry out to God again and then God would send another deliverer. And that just happened over and over. And during this time, God would send special men called prophets. And a prophet is just a guy that God would speak to in some kind of supernatural crazy way and he would say tell my people this and then the prophet would go to the people and by the way the people didn't always like what he had to say and he'd say hey God's telling us to do this and often those guys would end up being killed people didn't like what God had to say and so the prophets kept coming for example one of the prophets was Isaiah Isaiah lived 750 years before Jesus which is 2750 years before us, he lived, and then he kept challenging the people, but also kept reminding the people that that promise through Abraham, also now through the line of David, their king, one of their kings, that the Messiah is coming. In Isaiah 6, 9, he says, we see this on Christmas cards all the time, for a child will be born to us, a child will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And every time these prophets kept talking about the Messiah as they challenged people to come back to God, but then it would mention the Messiah, we learned more about the Messiah that was coming. But like Isaiah as a prophet did not only prophesy that the Messiah would come, he also prophesied that along with the Messiah, a forerunner, an advance man would come. Somebody would come with him to sort of introduce the Messiah. For example, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says this, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And so we have these prophets, they kept challenging people to come back to God, but the people kept drifting from God over and over, rebelling, then they'd be conquered and finally exiled to a foreign land. 
So this happened, for example, through history. History lesson's almost over, so hang with me. It happened. First, it was Assyria came in and conquered, and then Babylon came in and conquered, and a bunch of people were exiled out of the land. And then after Babylon, it was Persia or Medo-Persia that conquered Babylon, so they controlled the land of Judah or the Canaan. And so that just kept happening and happening. In the meantime, all the while, God keeps raising up prophets. For example, about this time when Persia conquered Babylon, Daniel's a prophet, and he was actually in service to the king of Babylon, but also the king, the new king of the conquering king, the king of Persia. And then he's a prophet, same thing, calling his people back to God, but asking God about his promises. And then God sends Daniel uh, a message, an angel, to say, hey, the Messiah's still coming. So in the middle of all this stuff was always the hope of the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, the Messiah is going to be here, and there's going to be an event, an event called cut off. We don't know what that means. Didn't know. And so he's going to be here in 483 years. Bank on it. From the, from the rebuilding of the wall. And then about that time, another Persian king allows the Jewish people who are in Babylon to leave and go back to Judah and rebuild their city and rebuild Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by Babylon King Nebuchadnezzar. So they go back and they rebuild the temple and the Jewish people are thrilled. They're being regathered. They rebuild their city and the walls. They rebuild the temple. It's the second temple called Zerubbabel's temple. Not quite as great as the first temple, but everybody's excited and they restore the animal sacrifice that they have not been able to do for a long time. But even with all that, the people kept rebelling against God and sinning and drifting from him and worshiping false gods. And even with the land and even with Jerusalem and even with a rebuilt temple, it just, nothing changed. God's people kept rebelling and God kept sending prophets he sent a prophet named Micah. Micah said, hey, a little bit more about the Messiah. He'll be born in this sleepy little town outside the outskirts of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. And then finally, it got down to the very last prophet recorded in Scripture, the last book of the Old Testament for us. And his name is Malachi. And God tells Malachi, a prophet, he says, confront the people. And so Malachi does. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Confront my people. And God had some things that he was saying, confront them about. He's saying, hey, do this, you know. And why? Why is God confronting? Because their worship was corrupt. They weren't bringing the best to God. The men of Israel had started marrying pagan wives, which then caused their family to drift even further from God. They stopped bringing in their tithe, which is the 10% of all their increase into the temple. They had stopped doing that, and God says, you're robbing me. So God comes up with this list, and he says, confront these people. But with all that 
judgment that he gives Malachi, and as dark as the days were during all that, he also has Malachi tell the people, the Messiah is still coming. Don't lose hope in the Messiah. And not only the Messiah, Malachi says, somebody like Elijah will come with the Messiah, and he will be the advanced man. He will be the forerunner. Same thing that Isaiah was saying. And then here's how Malachi ends. Here's the last words of the Old Testament, last three verses. It's significant because the last word of the Jewish Bible is the word curse. Here's how it goes in Malachi, verse 4, beginning in verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. Let me pause there just for a second. Because we know God sends Elijah twice. Why? Because Jesus comes twice. We know that Elijah first was John the Baptist. We're going to get to that. And we know in the future when Jesus comes again, there's another Elijah-like figure along with a Moses-like figure. Maybe them resurrected, I don't know, that will precede Jesus coming back the second time. Here we go. We're continuing in verse 6. He, this is this Elijah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so he says this, we're going to have this guy who is kind of like the prophet of Elijah that's already been and gone. He's going to come. He's going to usher in the Messiah. And it's a good thing he's coming because he's going to turn everybody back to God because if he didn't do that, I would smite the land with a curse. And then right after that, Silence. And if you think this is awkward, 400 years of silence. The Jewish people wait to hear from another prophet, another man from God, anything. Silence. They pray, they ask, they beg. 400 years of silence with Malachi's final words of condemnation ringing in their, in their ears. Year after year after year. But after 400 years, God uses a man named Zacharias. And we see that in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And here's where I want to start. Normally, when we talk about Christmas, we start with the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. But Luke really attaches this to the Old Testament even more tightly than the other writers, with the exception of John. And here's, here's how he says it. Luke 1, beginning of verse 5. In the days of Herod the king, in the days of Herod, king of the of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. 
but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So now let me bring you up to date on what's happened. God's been silent for 400 years. God's been silent, but the world has gone on, right? And so after Persia, then a man named Alexander the Great conquered the world and conquered Persia. And he did that for Greece, and that's why our New Testament is written in Greek, because of Alexander the Great. And actually, Alexander was prophesied in the book of Daniel, but this is another story not going there. And then the next thing is after Greece, then Rome conquered the world. And this is just a few decades before the time of Christ. And then Rome conquering the world brings us to the words that this opens with, and that is, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, Herod the Great is the puppet king of Rome who has now conquered Israel. And then Zacharias. Zacharias lived in the first century. He's one of about 20,000 priests in Israel. One of 20,000. Because of that, there were so many priests, they divided up into different sections. He's, he's of Abijah. And so he's part of this. And then these priests, there were so many of them, they would cycle through. Because here's what's happening in the temple. Every single day, the people are making a morning and evening sacrifice to God in recognition that they had sinned against him and that their sin, they could not make it up by living a good life, that the only way that that could be covered is by the shed blood of an innocent, perfect lamb, and that that would just be temporary. So they're slaughtering lambs every day, one in the morning, one in the evening, one in the morning, one day after day after day. There's so many priests that when Zechariah's section of priests would go, they would actually only serve two weeks a year. One week, they would serve for a week, then go home, and then six months later, come back and serve another week, and that would be their service for the year. But even though they only served once a, two weeks a year in Jerusalem, there were still so many priests that when they made the evening sacrifice, one priest then would be charged to go into the temple proper and burn incense. And there were so many priests, in order to select that one, they did it by lot, or the way we would say, they did it by lottery. You know, everybody's name in the hat, and they pull one out. That's how they picked. And, and most priests would spend their entire lifetimes and never get picked for this, so it was a huge honor. And then, uh, you know, and when they did it, they would serve it one time, they would never do it again. Now picture what's happening in Jerusalem. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. It's also time of evening prayer. So all the people in Jerusalem, they're up and they're on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is about 35 acres. Herod the Great actually refurbished the temple of Zerubbabel so the temple looks way better now. 
He's expanded the Temple Mount, and on, on the Temple Mount, I think we have some pictures there, there's this huge court around it. That's called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where the Jewish people were supposed to teach non-Jewish people about God. Then inside of that was something called the Court of Women. There, Jewish people could hang, but no non-Jewish people could go in there. And then a little on one side of the Court of Women was called the Court of Israel, and that was where only men could hang. It was kind of in the same area, but up those stairs only they hung. And then inside that, and usually surrounded by some sort of a little wall, was the court of priests, and then you had the main temple building. If you went into the main temple building, which nobody did except for one priest a day, you would walk in and you would enter the holy place, and in there you would see a table of showbread on your right, and a big candlestick, the seven candlestick, the menorah, on your left, and then in the middle was a small altar that you would burn incense on, and then the back wall would be a curtain, and behind that was the Holy of Holies, where nobody went except for one man, the high priest, one day a year would go in there. That was the holiest spot. And so now Zacharias has been picked to go in and to do this. And so he's chosen. This is the the pinnacle of his ministry. He'll never be chosen again. Most people never are chosen. He's the guy. This is his Super Bowl. This is the pinnacle. This is it. He's pumped. It's his highest point in ministry. And God does something special. We pick it up in verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Okay, now Zacharias has gone in, and he's interrupted by what he's going to do. He's heard about this all his life, about what he's supposed to do. He's never been inside. He goes in. He starts going about his business. He's interrupted. Verse 11, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. And fear gripped him. You'll notice if you read scripture, every time somebody runs into an angel, fear, or they faint, or, or some other things I won't even mention. I mean, they see an angel, it's like, whoa. You know, these are not the angels that we see depicted on our Christmas cards, right? They're never effeminate, never effeminate in scripture. They're never pudgy little babies with wings. That's not what angels are. When scripture describes an angel, they are intense, They are powerful, they have strength, character, power, and the sight of them strikes fear. And the angel, which is really what angel means, messenger, has a message from God. Next verse, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition, that's your prayer, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. It's the ultimate gender reveal right here in the temple. I mean, he's like, what? It's a boy. I didn't even know we were having a child. Yeah, it's a boy. Call him John. Of course, that's back when there were only two genders, and so that was a lot lot easier back then. And there's still two genders today, but you know what I mean. Hey, you're having a boy, and the boy's name is John. Boom! And he's like, what? What? He can't believe it. And this godly man has been praying. And, and, and we know he's been praying about a couple things, and we're going to get to that. 
But this man's been praying. For, we know he and his wife, because they're older, he and his wife have probably been praying for a child just like Carl and Brooke. Been praying for a child. They've probably been praying for a child for decades. Yet it seemed God was silent. And that's at a time, by the way, when childlessness was really kind of cast a, a dark shadow on you. People wondered, you know, what, family was so important, children were so important back then. You know, what's going on? Why is, why is God not blessing these people? Actually, for most people, Jews in the first century, childlessness would be grounds for divorce. But Zacharias is a righteous man. And so this angel says, your prayers, your petition has been answered. And, and so we ask, well, what prayer? Because in their old age, are they still praying for a baby? doesn't seem like it as this all plays out. So what's going on there? Well, as a couple, they've previous, no doubt, they've previously been praying for a child. We get that. But God is answering a bigger prayer here. God is answering what all the priests prayed for. God is answering what almost all the Jewish people were praying for. God is answering what this whole, this whole ritual that they're doing is all pointing to, and that is that God would intervene in history, that God would draw a line and send the Messiah. And God's doing that right here. And before we go on, just a thought. What are you praying for? What do you earnestly pray for? Because some of us have prayed for weeks, months, years, even decades for something. And what we've experienced is God has not answered that in the way we pray for. Maybe that's true for you. You've been praying, praying, praying. And for you, God seems absent. God seems silent. God seems uninterested or disconnected. But I'm telling you, God will answer your prayers. It may not be answered the way you think or the, the way you envision it. God will answer your prayers in the way that is best for you and his people. And so the story continues in verse 14. Here's the angel still talking to Zacharias. He says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Whose birth? John's birth, not Jesus, John's birth. For he, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine nor liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he, John, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. And that him now is the Messiah, Jesus it will, is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit of, and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And now here, the angel is quoting one of the last things that the last prophet in the Old Testament said, Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous and so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Think about it. He's going through this ritual. They're making the sacrifice like he does every year, twice a year. But now he's been chosen to be the one person that day that goes into the temple building, heard about it all his life, never been inside the temple. He goes in there. He's startled by an angel. And this angel's telling him, hey, God, you've been praying all your life. Israel's been praying for hundreds of years. All the priests have been praying for and will pray today for this. And your son, you're going to have a son, and he will introduce the long-awaited Messiah to the world. And he'll turn many to turn back to God. All the sacrifices point to this, and he's finally coming. And Zacharias, your son, We'll introduce him to the world. And then we see how Zacharias responds to this amazing message from this angel. I mean, his prayers and the prayers of Israel for 100 years, prayers of Israel for 100 years, they're, they're being answered. But here's what happens to us sometimes. We pray and pray and pray, and then God is going about answering that prayer. But as he answers it, we sort of get caught up in our limited perspective, our limited focus, our life, and start thinking about how this is going to impact me. Same thing happens here. He's not focused on the bigger picture. Continues in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? He questions the angel. How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is an old advanced in years. It's kind of, that's how he says it. You could tell he's been married for a while. So how we, and we're all thinking, how will you know an angel is telling you this in the flesh? You know what? That's how you know. Verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, what's interesting about this is Zacharias would recognize the name Gabriel because Gabriel is the exact same angel who had a message from God to Daniel who told Daniel, it was Gabriel who told Daniel, hey, in this amount of years, that's exactly when the Messiah is gonna come. And now Gabriel shows up again Hundreds of years later, telling Zacharias, you're going to have a son, and he's going to introduce the Messiah to the world. Boom. The Messiah is coming. How's this going to happen? The Messiah is coming. But how's this going to work out? The Messiah is coming. Verse 20, and behold, and then he's a righteous man. He's a blameless man, but he's judged for his disbelief. The angel continues, and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, 
which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And while all this is happening, the people are out in the courts, in the courts of the Gentile, but even more packed is the court of women and the court of Israel, and the priests are waiting, and all the people are waiting. They're they're there for the hour of prayer. They're there for the daily sacrifice. They've all assembled together. They all watch this play out. Only takes a few minutes to go there and offer the incense and come back. And then the priest that was in there comes out and leads in a short prayer, and that's, that's the signal. It's over, and people are waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and the guy's not coming out. They don't know who Zacharias is. I saw him go in. He's not coming. Maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he's in there dead. What's going on? We don't know what's going to happen. And finally, when he comes out to do the prayer, guess what? He can't speak. After 400 years of silence, God reveals himself what's going to go on to a man who then is not able to speak for nine months. Kind of ironic. But anyway, this all plays out, and the people are going, whoa, something is up. Something happened. Verse 21 continues, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them. And he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying this. And she's saying this, by the way, with a smile. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And we see that God's not only answering Zacharias' prayer and the prayer of a nation for hundreds of years, But in the middle of all that, God is reaching down and answering the prayer of this one woman named Elizabeth. And maybe, just maybe, she was the most joyful and appreciative of all. And the prophet John is introduced into the world, and he is really the last Old Testament prophet the last prophet, true prophet, before the death of Christ. And what did he say as he was pointing, as he lived in contemporary times with Jesus, as his ministry was fading, Jesus' ministry was ramping up, he's saying, behold, the Lamb of the world is what he was telling them, introducing them to Jesus. But what was his message? Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. I mean, it's here. He's saying, change your ways, live different, turn around, come to God, repent, be different, change your life. It's time, showtime, Messiah is here. He's here, he's come, he's here right now. We've been waiting for centuries. Here he is. And God announces all that through one obscure but righteous man that God will intervene in history and he will draw a line where history on this side of the line is forever changed. Forever. Because Messiah came. And he came, he was born ultimately 
to die. And with his death would end all animal sacrifices, all the need for any of that stuff, because he is the perfect lamb who shed his blood in payment for our sins forever. And if we just respond to him with belief, with faith, we'll be forever changed. That's how Luke is introducing Jesus' ministry. And some, no doubt in this room, have experienced times where you feel that God is silent or you've been praying for something and God hasn't been answering and you're wondering what's going on, what's happened, where's God? Remember, first of all, a few things. First of all, remember this, that God, God's silence does not indicate indifference. I, I can tell you from God's own words, God loves you, and he knows every circumstance that you're in. Secondly, God's silence does not indicate his absence. Because if you're a believer, if you've put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, that's not everybody here, but if you've done that, God says he will never leave you, never forsake you. You can't spend a minute that God is not with you. We walk away, but he goes with us. He is always with us, and nothing can change that. He has not abandoned you. He is with you. And third, keep focused on the big picture. We pray for stuff in our lives, and usually a lot of it's about personal circumstances, but we miss the big picture. God is doing something in history right now. We may be living in the most exciting time of God's redemptive history, but either way, right now, God wants us. He's working. His silence doesn't mean he's not working. God, still on the throne, is still working every day. People are coming to him, and he has given us a purpose and a reason to be here. Every day, every minute, he wants us dialed into what he's doing that we would impact the people around us and point them to God. And one of the best times to do that is while our country celebrates Christmas and people start realizing, oh, this really isn't about all the cultural things. This is actually a spiritual thing. And so when you share the gospel with somebody, God's message with somebody now, they might be more receptive than ever. We do know that at this time of year is the best time to invite someone to church so they can hear the message. God's still working, and he intends to use you, wants to use you, plans to use you to be a part of his work here on earth right now. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you Lord, for your grace, your goodness that you made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins forever. 
And it's not by a bunch of hoops we have to jump through or a bunch of work we have to do. It's just by faith in your son. Thank you. And God, this Christmas, Lord, help us to recover the anticipation of what you're doing in our world right now and how you'll use us to accomplish your purposes this Christmas. In Christ's name we pray, amen.